book of Mark. Book of Mark. We're going to continue our journey through Mark this morning, looking at this next passage. Um, but before we do, let's, uh, let's open up with a word of prayer. Father God, we come, Lord, needy. Uh, we come needing change. We come broken. We come with uh, nothing in our hands. We bring, Father, but simply to the cross we cling. And so, Father, we pray this morning that you would uh, quicken our hearts. Give us understanding. Give us knowledge. Not knowledge that puffs up, but, Father, Lord, just knowledge of you so that we have right understanding of who you are and who we are in light of that. Father, we pray, Lord, that as we're challenged this morning, Father, Lord, we would consider if there's anything keeping us from following you fully and completely, if there's anything in the path of obedience, of discipleship, Father, Lord, we pray this morning that you would rip that from our fingers. Lord, we ask you to do these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Mark chapter 10 uh, is already read for us this morning. I wonder if you had one question you could ask Jesus Christ, what would it be? What would it be? So here Jesus is. From Mark chapter 8 to Mark chapter, the end of Mark chapter 10, these are called uh, the discipleship passage. These chapters show us what Jesus has in mind for his new followers, what it means to be a Christian, if you will. And so here he is. He's about to head out on his journey. You can see that at the beginning of verse 17. He was setting out on his journey, this journey that would take him to his death at the cross, the journey where he would be willing to lay down his life for the life of his friends. But before he's able to get very far, a man runs up and kneels before him. Already before this man opens his mouth, we can learn something from him. We can see from his posture that, that he is, in fact, looking to learn something from Jesus. He assumes from what he's heard of Jesus, maybe seen personally himself, he's assumed that Jesus can tell him something that he needs to know. And so he kneels before Jesus, as we all one day will. And he asks him this question, good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? It's an interesting question, isn't it? You see, I wonder how many of us, that would be the first question we would ask Jesus. How, how, do, how do I do this, Lord? What would you have asked Jesus if you were given the chance? Would it have been this question or something completely different? I wonder, in our day, do we even think that this is an appropriate question to ask? Is life after death something that is pondered much since the advent of technology? Was it just that these people had too much time on their hands? And so they sat around and contemplated these sorts of things. Thought of what life would look like once they were no longer in the picture. But now we, being sophisticated as we are, well-dressed, as we are, no longer ask these kinds of questions. Is that what's happening? You see, I think to some extent it's true. It's true, isn't it? I think we have, by and large, filled our calendars and our days to the brim. And we have filled it from the faucet of the world that we no longer need to sit and think about what actually happens when we die. Like, imagine, when was the last time you contemplated, Christian, when was the last time you thought, what actually happens the second after I'm dead? 
Or you unbeliever? What are you, when was the last time you sat and thought, is there more to life than this? You see, some of us, we fill our buckets with the falsehood of culture, constantly keeping up with the latest TikTok reels, or the latest development in the Johnny Depp case, perhaps. Or the latest TV show or movie. You see, we spend countless hours scrolling our lives away through social media, making comparisons about our meager lives compared to the lives of the ones we follow. Some of us, that's true. Still others of us, we fill our buckets with the faucet of news, always on alert to hear the ever-present danger that never seems to dissipate from around us. We read on the next big thing coming our way or the five things that are killing America today, and we long for the good old days as if those were the best days and wonder how we ended up in the mess that we're in. And still for others of us, we fill our buckets from the faucet of careers. We dive headlong into working on the latest business problem that threatens to undo us under the guise of well intentions like supporting our spouse and providing for our children, we spend countless hours tinkering and working, but we leave our families and even our God in the background. Since we are quick to fill our buckets with whatever it is that drives us, whatever it is that motivates us, we must first engage with this text and ask ourselves is this even the question that we would ask? You see, I believe one of the reasons we try to always fill the silence around us is that at the bottom of our buckets, we find that much like this man, we are plagued with the same questions. Questions like, what is eternity? Or, am I good enough? What happens after we die? You see, these are the questions we try to avoid, aren't they? because we have no words or categories of thought with which we can engage them, and yet, they're always there in the back of our minds when the rush of the day is done, and we may not ask them out loud, but deep inside, we feel them. Question, what is life? What's the purpose of all this? Does good really win in the end? You see, Ecclesiastes 3.11 states that God has set eternity in the human heart, so in every human soul, is a God-given awareness that there has got to be something more than what we see. And with that awareness of eternity comes a, a hope. It's not just a, a Western thing, but across humanity, there's this hope that somehow good wins in the end. Somehow there's something more. We look at our lives and we say, this can't be all that it is. We look at the brokenness of the world and we think, there's got to be some kind of ultimate justification, even the unbelievers feel this even if they don't say it and so this man he comes to to jesus the gospel of matthew tells us he's he's young the gospel of luke tells us he's rich and so this rich young man this rich young man comes to jesus kneels before him and after addressing him as one from whom we can learn with the phrase good teacher ask the question what must i do inherit eternal life that's the question that's the question that plagues each of us keeps us up at night and so this morning let's examine the answer Jesus gives the answer in three parts that was very Baptist of him I appreciate it the first part is he, he starts with a fundamentally different 
starting point. You see, Jesus sees the man. And before answering the question, intentionally points something out to, man, out to the man. Look at verse 18. Jesus says, why, why do you call me good? He hears the man and begins to answer the question first, not by giving a list of things he must do, but instead with a question, why do you call me good? What's your motivation, young man, in calling me good? He then goes on to state why he would even ask such a question. He says, because no one is good except God alone. What's, what's Jesus doing here? He asks a simple question, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, hey, man, ain't nobody good except God. What does he mean when he says that? Jesus, if we could interact with Jesus today, perhaps we would say, well, what about Mother Teresa? Isn't she good? I don't know why Mother Teresa is always the one we cling to, but it is. What about the family man who loves his wife and kids exceptionally well? What about the brave men who put on the uniform to lay down their lives for their country? Aren't they good, Jesus? Are these people not good? Notice that Jesus makes this statement without qualification, meaning he doesn't put an asterisk by it. He simply states it as fact. You see, this is a fundamentally different starting point for this man. And not only for him, but for us as well and for the disciples who are around him. You see, the starting point for Jesus is that no one is good. Your mom, not good. Some of you are like, amen, brother. I know. Your dad, not good. Your children, not good. And all the parents said, amen. But don't these people often seem to us as good? If the heroes in our lives are not good, does this mean that they are just as bad as the villains, we ask ourselves? Should we throw them in jail? Should we throw ourselves in jail if we are no different than the common criminals? The answer to this, and so many questions like it, depends on which courtroom you're standing in. You see, the chances are we should not lock your mom up in the Marysville Reformatory for Women. Because in the eyes of the Marysville Court of Law, your mom is indeed a good person. But what about the courtroom of eternity? Are you good or not? You see, the man came to ask a question not about the local Palestine courtroom. He was asking a question about the courtroom of eternity. His question was, what must I do to inherit, notice, not just life, but eternal life? He was not asking, how should I have a good life on this earth, Jesus? Or, what is the best means that it may go well for me all the days of my life? He was asking about life everlasting, life after this one. And thus, Jesus reminds him that in that courtroom, there is only one who is good. And that is God. We'll pause here long for the implications of what Jesus is actually saying here, but just think for a moment about what this means. Think about the goodness of our God. You see, Christians do not worship an evil deity who simply reigns from the sky, simply wants to destroy people. No, our God does not say one thing but mean another. He is good in every sense of the word. And he isn't good sometimes and sometimes not so good. But in his very being is goodness. It never fluctuates or never changes, but it is simply who he is. You see, our greatest conception of goodness pales in comparison to the actual goodness that is our God. This is the first part of the answer. Jesus changes his starting point, fundamentally changes it. 
from who's actually good. God is good, and therefore no one else beside God in that courtroom is good. Look at what happens next. Look at verse 19. Jesus says, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your mother and your father. Jesus in here is quoting, or paraphrasing at least, the, uh, the commandments, uh, number 6 through 10. And this is amazing, right? So many people try to say, well, you know, Jesus blew up the Old Testament, started a new religion, but that's not what Jesus was doing. You see, Jesus is the Word of God. John 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. You see, Jesus was there in the beginning. He was an active participant in the creation narrative of all things. Jesus was there when the commandments were given to Moses on Mount Sinai. Jesus was never about abolishing the commandments. Rather, he was about fulfilling them on our behalf. And so in the first part to answer this massive question of inheriting eternal life, Jesus reorients the man and with him all of us who ask the same question, that God is the only one who is good. And in the second part here, he says, if you want to inherit eternal life, live by the commandments. So you know at this point, the man has to be feeling pretty good about himself. Yes, I realize no one's good but God, but you just said live by the commandments, and perhaps his face began to light up. Perhaps he was excited to hear that there wasn't some new thing he had to do, some new sacrifice that had to be made. You know that thing when we're talking with someone and, and, and we're, we're engaging conversation and they say something, and before they even finish the sentence, we already know what our response is going to be? I imagine that's what this man was feeling. Look at his response in verse 20. Jesus says, live by these commandments. And he says, he said to him, verse 20, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. I've done all of these things. I've been a good student in the scriptures. I've learned them. I've meditated. I've memorized on them. I've not committed adultery. Now, what's interesting here is our response to this man. You see, there's either one of two things going on in your heart right now. Either you look at this man and his assessment of himself, and you say, you know what? I also haven't killed anybody. I think I'm pretty good. Well, you look at this man you call BS. Look at the response from Jesus. Verse 21. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Don't miss this look. It's very quick. He looks at him. He loves him. Christ sees the man as he really was. Perhaps this man did believe that he had kept perfectly the 6th, 7th, 8th, ninth, and 10th commandment. Or maybe he didn't. Maybe it was an abject failure. He didn't understand the heart behind the commandment not to commit adultery or not to murder. Either way, Jesus looks at him and loves. This is the same Jesus who lovingly looks at you, friend, where you are. You see, Christ calls us all to come as we are. You know, as a pastor, I get all asked all the time, you know what, Pastor, is your church one of those churches where will you accept me? To which I love and look at them, big smile on my face, and say, absolutely. We love you. That's what Jesus is doing here. Don't miss it. There's a book out there on the Resource Center. By the way, I don't know if you've noticed that stand of books. Those are all free. Take one. There's a book out there called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers, and I encourage you to take it, read it slowly. 
It's what he's trying to do in, the, in our age of thinking Jesus all judgment, all wrath, all, all this. He, we miss over the fact that Jesus looked at this man and loved him. Look what he said to him. Verse 21. You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. You see, Jesus in this third part of the answer is replacing his idols. You see, Jesus, although loving this man as he does, sees in his heart that he has not kept all the law. He sees that this man has an idol. He has a love of something far greater than God. And so Jesus pushes on that idol here. This man, you see, has many possessions. He has lots of things. He is wealthy. And so Jesus gives him the ultimate answer to the question. What must I do to inherit life in the form of a question? Do you love me more than anything else? This is the same question he asks you, brother, sister. The question we should ask ourselves is not, do I want to go to heaven when I die? It should be, do I love Jesus more than anything else? in life, more than family, more than jobs, more than success, more than wealth. And notice, this is not a new commandment. It's the first commandment incarnated. You see, the first commandment said, you shall have no other God before me. And Jesus is that God. And Jesus pushes on the man, sell everything you have, come follow me. See, he was trying to replace the man's idols, but notice the man's response in verse 22. Disheartened. It's the same word, that, uh, the same phraseology that, that Matthew used to explain when Jesus was being crucified on the cross. All the clouds begin to darken, disheartened by the same. He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. We never hear from this man again. And so Jesus, doing what Jesus does, sees this as a teachable moment. He teaches two things here. He teaches that obtaining an eternal life is infinitely harder than everything you thought it entailed. But he also teaches that it's infinitely better than you had ever dreamed. You see, the rich young ruler had come to the right person. He came to Jesus. He asked the right question, how do I inherit eternal life? He had received the right answer, honor God, follow Jesus, and complete trust like a little child. By the way, he's reminding them of what the passage we preached on last week. Sadly, though, he does not respond correctly. He walks away from the only true source of eternal life. Look at verse 23. Jesus looked around. He sees his disciples here, and he said to them, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now, here's what Jesus is not doing. He's not condemning wealth. Right? If you read the Old Testament, it's full of rich men, rich, rich folks. Right? You had Abraham. How much land did he own? How much wealth did he have? Moses, when they left Egypt, what did they do? They carried out all the, all the gold from Egypt. Many rich men. You see, Jesus is not condemning wealth and commending, in a sense, poverty. This is not a call to simply sell everything you have, although it may be for some of you. The point is wealth breeds confidence in one's own self. It has this addictive quality, and Scripture talks constantly about it's always this weird interaction between church and the communities where, like, all the church wants is my money. We don't even take up an offering here, folks. Now, I want you to put your offering in the give boxes in the back. That's how this thing keeps going. But Scripture talks constantly about the dangers of money. 
And it's a dangerous attraction. It becomes life's priority. And the things of God go by the wayside. Disciples listening, hearing this, and they say, What? Seriously? Can't believe their ears. And so Jesus says it again, verse 24. Disciples were amazed at his word. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Notice this love of Jesus. He's tenderly loving them. He says, Children, listen, listen. The camel is one of the largest animals found in, in Palestine in that part of the world. The thought of trying to squeeze it, humps and all, through the eye of a needle would strike his disciples as funny and yet also impossible. Look at verse 25. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. What's Jesus doing here? He's he's reorienting, right? This is why these these sections of Scripture is called the discipleship section. Jesus turns the value system of the world on its head. So they're hearing this. Eye, the needle, very small. Camel, very large. Can't happen. Verse 26. Exceedingly astonished. And they said to him, Who can be saved? You see, Judaism in this time was guilty of its own prosperity theology. Wealth and riches were seen as some kind of evidence of God's favor on their life. And here Jesus begins to correct their bad theology. Wealth can build a barrier to one thing necessary to enter the kingdom. What Jesus said in verse 15, Truly I say to you, whoever, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. You see, the answer to their question is one of the great theological affirmations of the Bible. They said, who then can be saved? And Jesus, verse 27, looks at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. You see, salvation is not something you and I can accomplish. Left to ourselves, we will never make it into God's kingdom and inherit eternal life. See, the disciples were on to something. So who, who? If it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, which is impossible, how then can anyone in the world actually be saved? And Jesus says, you know what? You're right. Nobody can be saved on their own. Salvation is, has always been, and will always be a divine accomplishment through the perfect atonement and sacrifice God's own son. With men entering God's kingdom, receiving eternal life is impossible. Listen, brother, sister, you can work yourself to the bone and still not make it in. If you desire for Christ to be your savior, you have to replace what you've been looking to as a savior. You see, for this young man, he, he viewed his things and his possessions and his wealth as a sign that I'm good. As a sign of, I got this. What's yours? What is it that you're hoping and trusting in outside of Christ? And so Jesus proves to him that this is infinitely harder than everything we previously thought. As a matter of fact, it's impossible, but he doesn't stop there. He also shows them that it's infinitely better than what they could have imagined. You see, we could suspect that the disciples would have lots of questions. They need to think things over. And so Peter, doing what Peter does, expresses a perplexed but heartfelt plea. Look what he says in verse 28. He began to say to him, ha, we've left everything and followed you. 
And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel. Notice, he begins this by saying, no one's left anything. If you've left it for my sake, if you've, if you've left everything, as I've called this young man to do, leave your possessions, follow me for my sake and the gospel. You see, Jesus affirms that whatever you might lose or give up in this life, for Jesus' sake and for the gospel, you will not fail to receive a hundred times more, both in this life and in life eternal. Look at verse 29 and 30 again. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house, brothers, sisters, mother, father, or children or lands for my sake or for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Here we've gotten to the answer the young man finally asked. But many who are first will be last and the last First. You see, the things Jesus notes that we may have to give up are precious things. He doesn't say that they're bad things. Home, brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, children, lands, it costs us to follow Jesus. That's the point. However, the blessings far outweigh all losses. You see, in God's kingdom, the benefits and blessings are simply too great to imagine. Infinitely better than what these brothers could stand there listening to what Jesus is saying. They're like, this is going to cost too much. He says, no, no. Little children, everything that you give up will be repaid a hundredfold. Now notice, Jesus seems to make him a little mess here for himself, doesn't he? Notice what he says. He says, you receive a hundredfold, both in this life and the life to come. So notice, he's not just talking about eternal life anymore. He's talking about now. Right now, like your life right now. You lose stuff for Jesus and for following Jesus. He says that, don't worry, you're going to be repaid even more now. You see, Christianity is not just a pie-in-the-sky kind of religion. We don't simply forsake everything in, in order to get something later. Rather, we forsake all things now so that we get something now. See, surely what Jesus is saying here is that in order to make up for all these losses, all these pains, all these uh, losing things, surely what he means is that he himself makes up for those losses. He himself is worth more than those losses. Think about it. We live in a day and age which says, you don't have to really give up anything. Come as you are, stay as you are, remain as you are, love Jesus, and everything is okay. And yet that's not what Jesus is saying here, is it? Calls the young man, forsake your idols, forsake your wealth, follow me. Disciples say, we've done that, we've given up everything, Jesus. We don't seem to have gotten any reward for this. Jesus says, no, no, no. What you are receiving is worth more than every loss piled together. You see, this is why Hudson Taylor, missionary to China for 50 years of labor, hard work, could say something like, I never made a sacrifice. And we look at Hudson Taylor and say, of course you made sacrifices. You gave up family. 
You gave up the comfort of America for China. You worked hard, worked your fingers to the bone. What do you mean you never made a sacrifice, Hudson Taylor? It's what he got in return was Jesus himself. He got Jesus. He doesn't get Jesus because he works hard. Like you and I, like, don't, don't miss this. Like you and I don't get Jesus because we work hard. We work hard because we have Jesus. Look what he says in verse 31. The many who are first will be last and the last first. Verse 31, this is a hinge verse connecting and contrasting the rich young ruler with the servant of the Lord Jesus. Again, the value system of this present age is being turned on its head. Many who are first will be last and the last first. It's one of those sayings of Jesus probably repeated on numerous occasions. Like he was probably teaching this to his disciples over and over and over again. You see, in Christ's kingdom, there's this grand reversal of every earthly standard of position, rank, and importance. God does not evaluate the same things in the way that you and I evaluate things. You see, as citizens of his kingdom, his children should think more like him than like the world. To the general public, the rich young ruler stood first and the poor disciples stood last. But God saw things from the perspective of eternity, from the courtroom of eternity, and the first become last while, they become, while the last become first. You see, those who are first in their own eyes will be last in God's eyes. But those who are last in their own eyes will be rewarded as first. What an encouragement. Or true disciples, like, like you and I, if we truly follow Jesus, even if the world says, man, like, that's a bad deal. Persecutions, Jesus mentions, you'll notice that, the difference between the list of things that the disciples gave up versus the things that they'll get in return, the list that they get in return includes with persecutions. And the world looks at it and says, that's foolishness, that's insanity. What a bad deal. Jesus looks at him and says, no, no, right now being repaid 100-fold. Tim Keller says the heart of the gospel is all about giving up power, pouring out resources, and serving. The center of Christianity is always migrating away from power and wealth. Jesus said to the rich young ruler, I want you to imagine life without money. All you get is me. That's what he says when he says, follow me. question for you and I is, is Jesus enough? Do you truly believe the person who has Jesus plus nothing actually has everything? That's the question Jesus puts before the man. That's the same question he puts before you and I. How will you respond? Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we pray that we would see you as worth more than all the riches of the world. We would see you as greater than all the blessings of the world. More than money, more than power, more than sex, more than drugs, more than uh, wealth, more than family, Lord, more than all things that you would be over and above it in our eyes. Lord, we can't see that unless you open our eyes. Lord, we can't see that 
you are worth more than all things combined unless you do a work in our heart. So we ask that you would move this morning. Lord, in the Christian's lives where, where we feel like we, we can't let go of one specific thing, Father, that you would rip it from our fingers and that you would replace it with yourself. May we see you. May we love you. So that when we encounter persecutions, when we encounter what feels like loss, we would actually count it as gain. Lord, we pray for the communion that we're about to receive, Father. We pray, Lord, and remind ourselves that you promised you would not drink of the, the drink until you drank it with us anew with your Father in heaven. Father, we we will take communion just a minute. We pray, Lord, that, that our hearts will be turned towards you, away from all the transient things of life that are passing away. Father, may we fix our gaze on you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. And then we'll ask the, the deacons, if they will, to, to begin to pass out the communion. And as a reminder, we take communion here once a month, usually 